0: Welcome back to Direct a Podcast, episode number 13. My name is Kurt Schneider, and as always, this incredible podcast is sponsored by Eightfold Creative. So this week, we have a very special treat for you guys, Director Anderson Wright. Anderson is the director of... Probably one of my favorite spots of 2016, Nazinga. Uh, it's a story of Nazinga Prescott. She's an Olympic fencer who is attempting to become the first African-American woman to medal in the Olympics. It's uh, an incredible story. So instead of listening to me blabber anymore, let's uh, get to the call. Take it away, Anderson. What's up, Anderson? Thanks for being on the podcast today. Hey man, thanks for thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, let's uh, let's kick it off with. Give me what your favorite commercial of all time is and why.
1: Okay, so I would say one commercial that I thought was particularly uh, influential in sort of I guess introducing me to like the the effect that commercials uh, could have on people or on me at least. So. When uh, I was I was a pretty big sports fan growing up. Um, so in in 2010, uh, LeBron James had left the Cleveland Cavaliers to go to the Miami Heat, and that was you know a very uh, contentious
0: the decision
1: uh, situation in the sports world at the time. And I remember I went to well, I was on like I went to like the Campus Grill to watch uh, LeBron's first game as a, a first game against the Cavaliers, his old team right? And it's in Cleveland and, you know, he shows up and the booing is just insane. Like it was one of the most hyped up games and, you know, there's just so much animosity in the air. It was really a very dramatic spectacle. And then um, right before the first quarter, right, when they go to, uh, they went to a commercial break, that commercial that aired immediately was this spot that uh, Stacey Wall directed called Rise. And uh, throughout it, you know, LeBron James, is addressing the camera, asking, what should I do? And that spot uh, to me was like really impactful because, you know, I was in a pretty boisterous, like loud college, like environment, you know, environment and just everyone just got silent. And it was in a way it was this spot was sort of the first public statement that LeBron had made um, post the decision. (laughs) So it was interesting to me because it was like so. This spot, while it was a commercial for you know Nike, it fit into this. It fit into a narrative and it made a public statement. And I don't know. I just thought it was like a really necessary uh, spot at that time. And then as soon as it ended, I just remember thinking like, oh my god! Like it was just it just got so quiet like. Like it just everyone was invested instantly. And then what became especially cool was in the weeks that followed, Cleveland fans made response videos where they'd cut up the, the commercial. And in between his questions of what should I do, they'd have like selfie videos saying, you know, maybe you shouldn't have abandoned our city this spot became this uh, i got i guess sort of platform for just interaction between the fan base of cleveland and this superstar athlete and then someone made a mashup between that spot and this uh, jordan spot that michael jordan narrates called maybe it's my fault and that one just talks about basically like all the work that mj put in in his you know childhood and how that made him who he is today. So when they're cut when they're when those two spots are intercut, it comes across as like LeBron is asking questions um that make him seem helpless. Mm-hmm. And then Jordan is responding with these answers that, you know, sort of uh are basically dictating to him that he should, I guess, uh own his situation and um take responsibility. And and then I was like, wow, that it just it was just so cool to see to me to see that like a commercial could uh, do that. And I I shouldn't say that it became a meme, but it became a very shareable thing. And uh, that got me into, I guess I sort of went down the rabbit hole and I found, you know, Stacey Wall's work, Rupert Sanders has done, um, did amazing commercials for the Jordan brand. And uh, I was, yeah, I mean, that, that, I'd say that uh, spot, that, that spot was an important one to, to me for sure.
0: So that, did that have a, like, where were you at as a filmmaker when you saw that? Like, were you already so a I, director or was that like a... No. So was that kind of an influential moment for you then? Um, so I was a
1: junior in college. I was an English major, actually, but I went to school with the intention of uh, working in film after school. I just wasn't sure where I wanted to end up in film. So I, I was definitely, like a lot of my peers, like of a, of a certain age... I kind of had a not traditional like film kid upbringing, but, you know, I had my mini DV camera. I was taking every opportunity I could in middle school and high school to, you know, make movies for class projects instead of doing PowerPoint presentations and Mm -hmm. um, stuff like that. I at the time, I guess sort of like my my professional introduction to the film industry was with an internship at Sony work in, in LA working for a producer in development. So I was a script reader. So every day, you know, I'd have to read, you know, two feature scripts, write coverage, which is just basically writing, you know, the spark notes, like a, I'd write a review and a synopsis. And then, you know, at the end of the day, the producer, instead of reading all all of the scripts that, you know, crossed her desk, she'd read the coverage and decide if you know a script was worth reading or follow up, etc. I wasn't sure where I was going to end up when I saw that commercial that felt like an introduction to uh, thinking about how commercials can be made in an artful way. Because at the time, my brand was just on just on the feature world. So so yeah, but I was not. Uh, I I don't. I couldn't call myself a director at that time. De- definitely not. Mm-hmm. Um, but. I had my eye on film and I was kind of trying to, you know, assess where, uh, where my place would be.
2: You know, when did you start, uh, you know, considering yourself a director and, and start directing professionally? When did you kind of make that jump? Um,
1: sure. Uh, so after, after college, uh, after college I immediately had an internship at Smuggler. Um, and that's actually where, um, where, you know, M- Miles J is the director at Smuggler yep. and Smuggler just, just one, um, you know, at age is production company of the year. So uh, that was a um at, at my when I had that internship, I don't think I totally fully realized like how uh like what you know what smuggler was even um. How but,
0: how did that happen? Like you just like you can't just shoot them an email and they're like here's an internship. You know, like what did that what did you have to do to get that? I
1: want I wanted to I wanted to work in film, and a friend of a friend had a job at smuggler. And then said, Oh yeah, I know this person at smuggler. And I didn't know what smuggler was. Um, but they made, my friend made that point of contact and then they were like, yeah, we're looking for interns. And then that's, that's how it happened. So, the, and, uh, the power,
0: the power of who you know. And
1: I'll tell you, I'll tell you what the, I'm, I'm really proud to be. So one thing I'd say is, so I didn't go to traditional film school. Um, mm-hmm. one thing of from my friends who did, like I was an English major, like I said, so my friends who did go to film school, um, you know, they, um, have, you know, they, they graduated with, uh, like with a, with a class, right. With, a um, a lot of my buddies who went to film school, um, through film school, they met the guy who now edits everything they do, the woman who shoots everything they direct. Like they made those connections. Whereas as, uh, at a liberal arts school, um, you know, there, uh, I didn't, you know, I just didn't have that, even though the, the learning environment was, was wonderful. But, um, at my internship at Smuggler, uh, the other interns who were there with me, Jack Turrets is now a creative director at Vice, uh, Shubashish Butiani, his short film won Best Short at Venice uh, two years ago, and now he just had his first feature in Ven- at the Venice Film Festival this past year. And then the other intern was Todd Martin, who is the DP who has shot the majority of the things that I've directed. So right. there were, you know, the there were a couple other guys, but it was, you know, the four of us, you know, at 22 years old or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, fresh out of school. And, you know, it was, I don't know. I just think it's really cool, uh, to, to know that like, yeah, I just, I just felt like I was part of a, of a class with that. So I'm, I'm definitely proud of that. As far as, uh, my internship experience at Smuggler, you know, it's sort of like any internship with t- pretty difficult responsibilities. Um, but, uh, what I did have the privilege of being able to to do was, I was able to spend time reading, you know, any, basically any treatment that any director, um, any smuggler director had ever made, it's, it's there, right, on their, That's on really their, cool. their mm-hmm. wire drive, and as an intern, you're invited to, you know, hey, like, go ahead, read all the treatments you want, they have the phone calls, like, all the agency calls logged, so, I mean, obviously, it's like NDA stuff, but, right. you know, being able to, between coffee runs, listen in, and see how, just sort of learn the vocabulary um, right. of how these interactions go down, that was extremely valuable. And then not only that, to be able to look at agency boards for a job, then, you know, hear the intro call, then to see, see the treatment, read the treatment, see the tone, and I guess the creative choices that the director, you know, was um, intended to make. And, and then to see the final spot afterwards was a really cool way to look at the process from and like an aerial view, and then by looking across like, the broad spectrum of all the different directors that smuggler reps, because there are so many amazing directors there. I mean they're also a little different now than it was then, but a lot of the same guys are you know, still doing incredible work over a long period of time. It's like to be able to um, kind of just get a sense for the different uh, vo- directorial voices. Uh, that were there in mm-hmm. the conversation I mean it was, that was so cool uh so that that was uh that taught me a lot about uh the sort of the infrastructure of the commercial business and i'd say like the machinery of how it uh just how it works mm-hmm. and that was extremely helpful uh because I think that you know I, I think just you know if there's you know if there's any younger uh you know anyone who wants to get into commercial directing who's listening i'd I'd say like what you know, to, to me, um, being able to learn just how jobs actually, um, are awarded and that just to, to learn the, I guess the different trajectories that directors can take within the commercial world was like, uh, so reassuring, um, and gave me confidence that, okay, like this is, you know, I, I could see, uh, a, a path, like that. this is a career that I could, that I could pursue. And, um, yeah, uh, and I, I went for it, but, um, Without being too long-winded, over the next two years, right? What I did was by PAing at Smuggler, I met a ton of uh, production coordinators, um, ads. They started bringing me on as a PA. So I, yeah, for a two-year period, I was freelance PAing on commercials uh, frequently. Um, I had a two-day-a-week job as an assistant to a professor in NYU's film department, and then a lot of odd jobs to pay the bills. I was a transcriptionist. For uh, documentaries, so I would, you know, I'd listen to interviews and just transcribe. Um, I was a post PA uh, briefly on a doc. Um, I worked as a post PA for the Food Network show Shopped. Um, <laughs> let's see what else. Some good um, Well, actually, I'm like, like I don't eat vegetables, so I kind of struggled in that one of my responsi- one of my responsibilities was to like like the AE would be like hey can you label you know the Swiss chard? can you label you know the kale for me and I would like look <laughs> at the food and not really know what was what uh, but <laughs> google it yeah exactly but um anyway so uh, uh, in the in the in, in the freelance game there was a lot of mandy.com searching um, and you're trying to Cobble these, you know, all these part-time film gigs together to sort of get a sense of, you know, just different facets within the film world. Because while I, I, I felt confident that I wanted to be a commercial director, and you know, I would tell people that too. Because that's another thing I would say if you're a young guy and you're interested in directing commercials, and someone says, "Hey, like, what do you want to do?" If if you want to direct commercials, say, like, I want to be a commercial director, like specifically. Because yeah. I remember I would, you know, I would PA on these commercials. And, you know, at first, you know, if, if I was talking with a coordinator or a, a PM and they say, Hey, you know, what do you, you know, what do you want to do? Eventually I'd say, Oh, I want to direct like, like most people say that. Um, but to say, if you said like, I want to direct commercials specifically, then I think, I think that was a good way to go because then the, they'd say, Oh, you know what? That's great. Because, you know, I know this per like, I guess it, it saying, that openly and kind of declaring it gave other people the opportunity to say, oh, you know what? Like I know how I can help you with that. Like I know who I can introduce you to as opposed to saying I want to be a director because there are so many, there's just so much content out there that like, you know, a a director could be so many things that if you just say, yeah, I want to be a director, they'll say, great, like good luck to you. And then that's kind of it. On the side, in order to kind of back that up, what I was doing was making – ads for very very small businesses so I made a spot for a hair salon um, I made a spot for a preschool uh, I made a spot for an etiquette school and it was paid with free etiquette lessons <laughs> I a lot of stuff a lot of stuff like that um, a buddy worked at a very small startup and these are things like oh we've got a $500 budget you know so it's me 5d I'm recording my own sound DP's there shooting on the 5d and that's it and we're like working basically for free, but that I was trying to build a reel. Now those, I don't think you necessarily build a reel. You definitely don't, you definitely can't build a reel that can get you like real commercial work with that type of stuff. But mm-hmm. like practice is huge, right? And, and just the experience of making something for a client was invaluable as opposed to say, you know, right at a film school um, making a short film, you know, entirely with recent grads. And, um, you know, then it's being, everyone's sort of making it for, you know, for the, for the film itself, as opposed to say like the experience of, yeah, like making something for a brand or, uh, someone with, with business interests. Um, so it's, and, uh, yeah, yeah.
0: So that's, so how did you, how did you go start. from that point, you know, right. to trying to so build what that happened, reel to yeah, then so. getting that first job of like, you know, substantial,
1: what happened was I made a spec. I made an Audi spec. My friend's mom had uh, recently <laughs> purchased a really cool Audi, and, I was, and we were like, "Hey, like we, you know, it would be cool to make a like make a spec with this Audi." So I rented a C three hundred. Todd Martin, my you know good friend and frequent collaborator, like go to DP. He shot it, and it was a pretty fun story where like the, you know, we're supposed to, we it was an overnight shoot, three man crew <laughs> and basically like the car, the production, like the picture car, right. It's, you know, my friend's mom's car. It doesn't show up until midnight. Um, because the, you know, the, the friend's mom was actually out on a date. So that kind of took a good, like four hours out of our shoot night, but we pumped it out in six hours. And then had a spec and I sent it to everyone I knew. I sent it specifically to one guy who worked at an energy bar company called Health Warrior. And at the time, Health Warrior's uh, public face, like the celebrity, I guess, like endorser of the brand, was this NFL running back named Arian Foster. So I said to him, Hey, I would love to pitch um, a, a concept to you, right, based on Arian. They're like, Yeah, cool, like you know, totally receptive, throw, throw at what, throw me at, throw at me, whatever you got. So Arian, as I was reading about him, when he's not, uh, when he's not playing football, he likes to write poems and some of the poems are like, not bad. They're pretty good. And I re- I really dug it. So, um, so I said, Hey, like I would love to pitch a concept to you where Arian reads one of his poems. And then over each line of the poem, we have a different visual that shows, Everyday athletes, mostly of like high school and college age, um, competing, aspiring, etc, just just trying their best, mm-hmm. right and then each visual will speak to the meaning behind each line. so then I made that treatment with Todd and this guy, Evan Metzold, who worked on the spec with us, and then we uh, submitted it, and they passed but then what I did was I sent it to Arian Foster's manager because his information was public, just <laughs> online. And then I'm, I'm getting my haircut uh, that day, and then I get a call from okay unknown LA number, and it's Arian's manager. And wow. he's like, hey, like, we, we want to do this. We'll finance it. No brand related at all. Arian just wants it for himself. So he, Arian paid for it out of pocket, and it became a short film. And, uh, that's Arian so, Foster where we dwell. That's amazing. So, so but what happens though, and this is where like a constant learning experience is there's so many ups and downs of like elate, elation and oh my God, I've made it. And then, oh my God, no one, they ever see this. So the first cut that, uh, Arian saw, he was like, Hmm, there are a lot of revisions that I'd like, to, like us to make. And, you know, the football season is about to begin. And I just really need to focus on football. So let's talk after the season. Right. So, cause we oh, said it to him, we, I know. So we had our first cut like at the, in, uh, in his preseason in August. And he's like, I just need to focus on football and then let's dive into this in January. Right. So fortunately, uh, for us, unfortunately for Arian, the Texans did not make the playoffs. So he was free in January. Um, The the notes ended up being like so minor. We pretty much like had, we pretty much did exactly what we had initially. There were some changes, but anyway, in that interim time, there was a lot of thought about how, I don't know, just a lot of thought about how the piece could go. And, you know, ultimately kind of said, all right, this is what we think. They were like, okay. Todd had shot a piece for Snapchat recently, right? And through him, uh Snapchat saw, like the head of video there, saw the piece. And then she said, hey, you know what? I would love to license this and then have Snapchat premiere it uh, on their Discover platform during the Super Bowl. So that was like their Super Bowl content. I guess it was 2015. Um, and then uh, <laughs> we're like, yeah, that's amazing. We're so down. All we needed was Arian's signature to, <laughs> to sign off, right? And he was down, too. But I was like, it's a very last second thing, the way this all kind of came together um, with Snapchat. And basically, like, Arian's assistant had to run an iPad into, not the ESPYs, but, like, some awards show that Arian was attending, like, in full tux and everything. And, like, had, basically, Arian did a sign, like, signed via sign <laughs> on the iPad. So, I mean, it was truly a, oh, my God, this piece could get seen by a lot of people or could get seen by no one. And it just made it. So it was a crazy experience. And then once it got out, then a couple directors reps hit me up and then I started getting real work. Um, And, and it got staff picked so that, you know, was a huge boost. And uh, yeah, that, that's, that, that's, that was certainly like the, if there was a break, a specific breakthrough, story. That's, that, that was it.
0: All right. You, you win, you win coolest making it story so far on the podcast is by far (laughs) the most unconventional one. I love it. That's so cool. What, what do you, so transitioning out, what, what do you think for you is the balance of, of doing like projects just for yourself, like passion projects versus client work? What like, is there, you know,
1: what I, what I would say is that my passion projects have gotten me more commercial work than any commercial ever has more brands and agencies have hit me up and said we want our spot to look like this and pointed to arian foster or pointed to other passion projects that i've done like that has happened more frequently than saying hey we really love this commercial you directed can you make our commercial look like that and it's interesting because what they're they're pointing to pieces that don't necessarily even endorse a brand or don't necessarily adhere to you know thirty seconds or sixty seconds, but I guess that's like long you know done and and dead anyway um but 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 yeah uh as long as it's short form you know because uh, agencies are you know so busy they have so much going on that it's you know if they're going to evaluate a piece and assess its commercial viability you know it, I think it has to be under I might be wrong about this but You know, I would, I would bet you're just going to have a higher retention rate if it's under, you know, five minutes or so. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'd say making passion projects is extremely important. One for just pure artistic fulfillment. It's so much fun. Uh, there was a time, you know, two years ago making a spot with just two other guys on a crew, run and gun, no lights. Like that was done by necessity, right? Because we didn't have the budget to do anything else. Um, And at that time, I remember thinking, man, like, you know, if I imagine what it'll be like when I can get on a set and just have a, a big crew and, you know, budgets, yada, 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 or whatever. Now it's kind of a funny thing where to take on those passion projects currently feels like so refreshing. Like, Oh, what a breath of fresh air! It's just me, DP, producer, or like a second AC and a, a sound guy just running around. Like it's so much fun. And it feels like, uh, I don't know the, 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 there's a camaraderie in that experience that gets formed. It's great for just, I don't know, just having really memorable, fun experiences with the people that you work with. And that's like, you know, what, what makes this job fun? The collaborative element is like so awesome. There, there are so many talented people that, that you get to meet and you get to work with. And, and yeah, so, uh, I would say, uh, please do passion projects, make them, you don't have to show them to people. If you're not happy with them, no one will know. But if you do make one and you dig it and you put it out, like, you know, that's awesome. Uh, I hope, I hope it brings you a lot of, a lot of work. So,
2: yeah. So you kind of mentioned collaborators. It, it seems like you work um, with a uh, similar collaborators. Like you mentioned Todd Martin and I've even noticed like you, you have a lot of edits and, and color by the Carlos Flores, is you know some other guys talk about using different DPS. Um, why do you like using kind of the same same group? Is that you think helps kind of define your style and your kind of why people hire you?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's um a, obviously a familiarity. A guy like I mean, I'd say, let me think about that for a sec. Um, I, I cert I love working with Carlos Flores. He's an amazing editor, amazing colorist. He does both. That's you know special. Um, and he, he does both really well. So that is you know that's that's very special. Obviously, as I've mentioned. I love working with Todd. We've collaborated a number of times in the past, and you know have plans to continue to do so on some upcoming projects. I'd say like those guys are guys who I feel like I've kind of been through the ringer with. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a, a level of trust, but creatively that is there, and also because we have had those experiences together. I don't know. I just, I just there's a sense of kind of like, you know, kinship or whatever, or fellowship together that we, you know, we want to support each other, whether we're working with each other or not, you know, because obviously as, as we've, all of us have gotten busier, right. We certainly can't work on every project together. That's, you know, just an obvious reality. And through that, you know, I've worked with some other awesome DPs and some other amazing editors too, just as those guys are frequently collaborating with, you know, some other incredible people
2: too well i think i think on our end i I could speak for myself like i think there's a comfortability you know you you can you can work with those people and i also think with those guys specifically you guys have all kind of defined a style together it's kind of like you know it's very tonal it's blue you know it's got kind of the same kind of feeling i think at least when i look at your work and i see those same collaborators i think like i can see why people would hire anderson to do this spot if they want this specific look so Totally, totally.
1: I've definitely had the opportunity to to get my reps in with with Todd and Carlos. We've worked together on a number of projects, and as we've worked together, we've been able to you know sort of get a sense, at this point, a really good sense of what we all like, what we dislike, and I think uh, kind of having that uh, sort of creative synergy where you know and can anticipate you know what uh what your what their instincts are going to be and likewise they know me really well too then I think we can have really like honest and open creative discussions and um we can yeah kind of make breakthroughs that way
0: what is what's your relationship with Todd like on set or or any any DP like are your, would you consider yourself to be a hands-on director or are you more so just kind of try and be the visionary and 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 making sure that everything comes together and you you know kind of let the camera guy the operator do his thing
1: totally um i think it it definitely depends on to some degree it's case by case it depends on the creative and it depends on who i'm working with too and it depends on on the style there are shoots where there are shoots like uh this this piece that I just did for um, Equinox, a uh, senior game. Right? So that was very doc and a lot of the, very very y and a lot of the decisions and a lot of the interviews had to be, like, we had to kind of capture moments as they were happening, pull people aside, kind of on the fly, intercept slow-moving senior citizens as they were, you know, walking off of the field or the track or whatever and, you know, try to convince him to be on camera for a little bit. That was an example where from a cinematography standpoint, you know, Todd had a a lot of freedom for sure. Right. And I relied on him to uh, take liberties with some of the framing. Right. In those situations, like on that shoot, there are moments where like, I didn't even have a monitor. Right. Because I'm kind of like hailing people down and trying to sort of just assess what's happening in front of us and trying to identify what emotionally and tonally will suit what I want the piece to to say. Um, whereas other pieces like, uh, Nzinga, I was fortunate to be able to like have a lot of input on composition. And I love composition. Um, you know, being able to, without obviously like stepping on a DP's toes, uh, being able to have a lot of input on, just the, the framing, how the camera is moving is like, that excites me very much. Uh, so I, I really would say it's, I really would say it's case by case. It, it just depends on the project. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I'd say it's, it's like triage, right? It's like whatever, uh, I'll, I'll sort of assess in the moment, like what is, what's the greatest need. And if I have the luxury of being able to really like comment on the framing and perfect takes, then hell yeah, like I'm right there. But if, if not, um, you know, I'm going to trust my DP and I'm not going to sweat it.
2: So you kind of mentioned Nzinga as a project. How did, how did that story kind of come about? How did that project come to you? Totally.
1: Um, so my, um, former roommate in New York, he, he claims to, that he was like a nationally ranked fencer in high school, but there's no <laughs> evidence of it anywhere on the internet. And so I don't know if I believe him, but he know that's like a running joke, but he, uh, <laughs> he knows fencing and, I, this is, this is like a, this kind of ties back to your question about balancing passion projects with brand work, client work, right? So I had gone a couple months, you know, without any like serious commercial work. And I don't know, I was just like, man, I just wanted to get back. I just wanted to make something really badly. And I said to my friend, I said, you know, I would love to shoot something about fencing. I love the way fencing looks. I think I could shoot it in a way that would be different than how it's, you know, usually depicted. When you see it on TV, it kind of feels like a dance. Typically, you know, the fight is the bout is shown in a, a very wide angle, the mics are far away, and it's you know, this back forth, back, forth, tip tap. Oh, it's over. Like up close, it's a very physical sport. I mean, you have to be in insane shape to do that well. And also like so, I, the the foils or the sabers, you know, depending on their their weapon, like they're not that light. So to take a hit, it's pretty serious, um, at least by my standards. So did I you wanted get the to suit and try I
0: was, it
1: out. No, no. <laughs> no, I never did. Um, I have been in a bee suit on set before, though. That nice. was fun. Uh, Basically but, the same thing. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, but um, yeah, I, and and then another thing that I thought was cool was. Um, sports films and sports commercials of uh, one of the most frequently dramatized moments is the anticipatory moment right before the beginning of the action. So in basketball, it's the tip off, right? You know, like the two centers are side by side. They're looking at each other. They're looking at the ref, they're looking up in the air and it's like waiting for the, um, for the ball to get thrown up in football. It's before the snap. So the two linemen, they're in each other's faces and You know, you can see their breath and their masks are right up, 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 up up on each other and they're breathing on each other and like looking, trying to psych each other out. And like those moments get dramatized so much because you can see like into the souls of the, or supposedly into the souls of these, these people, you can see what they're feeling, read the, the intensity, the desire to win, all that. In fencing, like these, they wear masks. Mm -hmm. You don't know what they're feeling. You don't know where they're looking so the, the idea of um, humanizing a faceless athlete felt like a really cool, creative task to me. And then also I wondered, man, like inside that mask, alone in the strip, like, do you get lonely? Do you feel like isolated? Like what mentally, what, um, what does that affect? Uh, how does that affect your psyche? Because I was always into team sports uh, growing up. So, so yeah, so the, those questions. I had those questions and my friend said, "Hey dude, you should check out the Peter Westbrook Foundation," right? And Peter Westbrook is maybe the most famous American Olympic fencer uh ever. Um he's an older guy, he went to 6 different Olympics and he was the first African-American fencer uh, on the US team you know ever. Um and he's also the first uh first African-American man to medal at the Olympics for for fencing. So after his you know long career, uh, he started a nonprofit called the Peter Westbrook Foundation, where he would give free fencing instruction to a group of minority kids from New York City and its boroughs. Every year, he would uh, bring in a new group of young kids, seven years old, eight years old, and introduce them to fencing. Yeah, I, I just thought it was incredibly cool. And uh, Nzinga Prescod is was one of those students and she you know ascended from just an eight-year-old who was trying out fencing for the first time uh to being the number two ranked women's foilist in uh in the u.s and i thought that was extremely interesting i looked her up she had a public website you know she went to columbia she had a facebook Um, so i sent her an email i friended her and said hey i you know want to tell your story if you want to meet for a coffee let me know and she said yeah I'm down and we met for a coffee talked about it I gave her my pitch and um she was like I've got a week in April before my serious Olympic training really begins so if you can shoot it during that week I'm down and that's uh yeah that that was how it that's how the connection was made and then creatively it it went from there
0: that's awesome yeah I mean I think one of the coolest shots in the whole thing to me, I guess you do it a couple of times, but when it like racks through racks, focus through the face mask is so great. Like, I didn't know that was a like possible to do visually. So well, that we, was to like, be honest, we, we didn't know, we didn't know either. So
1: really? I, uh, yeah. So as, so structurally I wanted the piece to begin with her sort of emerging from, you know, the haze in this, um, you know, dreamlike cavernous white psych, Right. And then we would push in to a shot of her mask. And what I was trying to accomplish was in line with um, the point I made earlier that that I was so interested in the fencer's mentality because I was trying to like, I guess what I was trying to do is show, okay this is a faceless. Who is this person? Who is this fencer? It's a it's a faceless warrior or whatever. Right. It's a masked woman, masked man, Mm -hmm. what have you. So we're filming that shot and Todd's like <laughs> to the, the gaffer. He's like, Hey, could you, you, you swing that light over a little bit. And then we, we do. And he's like, dude, look at this. And he rack focuses into the eye and we're like, Oh, oh yes. <laughs> like, we, like we, we had no, we didn't know either. The shot was supposed to be just the mask. Right. And then when that happened, we were like, Oh dude, yes. And the, uh, when those moments happen on set, there's, ah, it's so exciting. Yeah. Like, cause it just, like, it would, just the, a moment where you and your DP and, you know, your pr- producers at the monitor, whoever, everybody, like what they, if they look at it and, oh, one of my, one of like the best indicators to me when something's really working well is like, if your craft service people <laughs> like are looking, they're like, and they're like, this is dope. <laughs> I'm, like, yeah. I'm like, this is awesome. Like, so, so yeah, So I uh, I really like, I really like, I think it's important to try to like read the room uh, when you're on set. That's a digression, but, but anyway, you, you know, everyone on set has a, a creative opinion and I'm not walking around asking people like, like, whatever, like, whatever, like, like, what
0: do you think about yeah. this
1: shot necessarily? But, but, but still like when, uh, I, I guess I'm just saying that that was a moment, that shot where like, the people on set, we were all, we all kind of looked at each other and we were like, nice. This and then, you know, like, yeah. yeah.
0: How, well, I'm curious, like, you know, how, how were you able to get such, such like a candid performance, I guess, especially in like the voiceover from, from a non-actor? Because, you know, the, the, the voiceover sounds like it's like a professional voiceover rather than just like you sat down and interviewed somebody and chopped it up. How, so how are you able to do that?
1: Totally, totally. So um, the first thing I did, well, first what we did was we shot uh, before any interviews. We shot the piece and we shot it according to story beats that I set out. And those story beats were determined by questions of just what makes Nzinga interesting. Um, so she's interesting because she's an amazing fencer. So got to communicate that. So how am I going to do that? Well, we have to see her in action. We have to see her in about. Hey, Nazinga. Where can I see you? Uh, pract- Where can I see you in action? She said, "Oh, you know, I spar at Columbia, um, you know, four days a week or whatever. So feel free to come on by." Great. She had a chance to become the first African American woman ever to win a medal for fencing. That's really important, right? How should that information be delivered, right? That's that's a big directorial question. Mm-hmm. Um, th- then, uh, as far as her her actual ranking, you know, okay, so. I needed to communicate to audiences that she's great at fencing and when you see her fence, it's obvious. But still, like most people don't have a reference point for, you know, what is actually great fencing. I mean, sure she she, you know, her skills are obvious and she looks talented, but like how could the normal viewer differentiate between what is best in the world, Olympic quality, and what is pretty damn good, right? right. So I was like, Okay, so we need to let the viewer know that she's number two in the US if she says it herself it could come across uh, it's it's hard it could come across as not humble mm-hmm. right so i was like that's going to be delivered with supers early um that was another thing then i wanted people to understand that fencing is a very physical sport that it's not it's not tap dancing like it's like it, you know the 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 physical preparation that Nizinga has to, just the pure um, amount of I wanted people to know also that fencing was a very physical sport. It wasn't like you know, ballet. I mean sure, it's the movement is like very fluid and beautiful, but I also really wanted to get the physicality across. So I had to see Nizinga working out just with her personal trainer. Um, so it's like, hey, Nizinga, you know, when can I see you working out? She's like, oh, I train with this guy here in Chelsea. Um, You know, Every day at this time, okay, can I sit in on it? Yeah, sure, why not? Boom, we're there. Sorry, I guess I'm not really answering your question. (laughs) But I'm like, I guess I'm just trying to like, I'm trying to like break down the components for you. Oh, um, another thing. uh, If I could have gone to Rio with Nzinga, I would have, right? But the budget did not allow for that. And really it only allowed for a three-man crew on most of the shoot days. What I wanted for the end was a shot that communicates that, okay, and now is off to the Olympics because the plan was always to release the piece before the Olympics so that way people could, you know, learn about her, um, get hyped up, and then hopefully watch her and cheer her on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's like, what's what final shot could I have that could demonstrate that, like, she's on the big stage now? So um my idea was, let's have it look like she's almost, like, on a stage, uh, like a theater stage and it's more spotlight. Right. So then our solution was to have her in the psych, um, standing uh, with her, uh, foil, like, you know, behind her, I guess over her shoulder. And I guess the most sort of, that was her, her superwoman pose, uh, for us. And then from a lighting standpoint, the conversation with Todd was like, okay, how can we make this feel as heroic as possible? And then we talked about, you know, theater spotlights. And that led to ultimately the, the lighting decision where the lights kind of like, I guess, scan, uh, you know, scan her position. And that felt like a nice concluding uh, finale.
0: I'm really curious real quick. How, how did you do the lights for that, that final shot? Did you have one was there one like underneath her that came up at the very end or was that over 10?
1: The final shot was two, um, Lico's on, uh, rotating, uh, you know, rotating combo stands. Mm-hmm. And we just had a man on each one mm-hmm. and they just, you know, physically moved the lights. Yeah. Um, we had a bounce, we had bounce boards underneath her.
0: Oh, to- so they came and landed on that at the end, which lit up her face. Well, Yeah. Okay. Yep. And then they rotate and then they rotate
1: away afterwards yeah. so she fades into darkness. So that was the that was the that was the idea. Yeah. No, that um, was really cool. And that's the thumbnail image. So it, it worked it worked out. Um, yeah. Lighting um that was the only day on our shoot that we had that we had lights. Um the others, it was all natural. Really? So it was really Oh yeah, yeah. So so it was it was really important to make sure that every space that we filmed in you know, was suitable for a natural light shoot because we couldn't afford lights. Like so that meant that I I when we filmed that. when when we filmed at Columbia with her, that's the actual uh sparring scene, like when she's right. fencing, right? We went and in advance to kind of figure out how what we could do. And there's just these, you know, these fluorescent like strip lights. So we just isolated the one strip of basically we were fortunate enough that there is we could unscrew bulbs to just isolate one strip of light above the uh the fencing strip right and then you know boom that's that's your look uh then for uh, another important component that i really wanted to get across that made nzinga uh, really a fascinating character to me is how she came up through the peter westbrook foundation so I felt like Peter had to make an appearance in the piece in order to, I guess, introduce who he is and contextualize just her her fencing, her upbringing within fencing. So Peter and Nzinga, they all train together, right? At night, they train at the Fencers Club in Manhattan and they don't have it all to themselves (laughs) normally. It's like, you know, space is being rented out by a ton of other fencers, and visually, it's kind of just like a, a mess. It's chaotic. There's a ton of movement. So what we needed was that space to be empty. So basically what we did was we just waited it out until everyone was gone and uh, convinced the staff that you know, we were trustworthy enough to stay under Peter's supervision and um, yeah, and, and film it. And then once we had that, then we were, again, were able to isolate bulbs etc. Um, other places in her home, again, that's natural light, that look. But her home, we were fortunate to have like, I mean, just the colors of the walls in her home. Oh, I love them so much. Like Her room is this dark burgundy. The living room is this kind of lime green. The kitchen has this these blue tones. And we went there really early. I mean, we got to her place around 6 a.m. and that's when we got shots of her running around her neighborhood. Um, and then, you know, we went into the home to get the interior scenes. And then, you know, we had natural light pouring in through the windows, hazed it up just a tiny bit, and then that that gave us the look that, uh, yeah, that we that we wanted. So the only scene in that entire piece that is lit is what we shot in the white psych. Uh, I sat down with Nzinga and I interviewed her for an hour and a half, um, no camera, just me, her and an H4N, and we did the interview just in her bedroom. Um, it was very casual. Um, it was after a long day. Her voice was pretty hoarse, um, a little quiet, and that interview uh, gave me, I guess, sort of the just the foundational information that I needed. Uh, then what I did was I transcribed it. I went through. I highlighted all the bits and lines that I thought were you know particularly significant or impactful. I <laughs> wrote it out. I basically copy edited her own words until I had a, you know, a paper cut of my favorite lines that she she had said and then I brought that that paper cut to her and I said, "Hey, like this is sort of the narrative that I see your VO taking. How do you feel about it?" And she said, "Oh, you know, I she had opinions about what she liked a lot. There were a couple lines that she felt like you know, out of context, didn't have the same meaning, but what we were able to do was then have a second interview where I was able to ask her questions that um, were, you know, directly in response to some of the comments that she had about the um, script from the first interview as it stood. And then once we had a complete sort of script, we did a re-record on a re-recording at Rock Paper Scissors as she read her own lines back. And then what we did then what we did was ultimately in the cut, fifty percent of what she says was from the original unscripted interview. And the other fifty percent was VO, right, recorded in a studio where she literally just recorded her own words back. She just read the transcript back in a cleaner way. Sans likes um Etc.
0: So none of it came, none of it came from a really traditional interview. It was all either that first super informal one or her doing line readings. That's correct. Yep.
1: And again, those line readings were just line readings of things that she had said in that first informal interview.
0: That's awesome. You know, just uh, a few more, a few more questions here. What, what are, what are some things that you do or, or places that you go for, for inspiration or ideas?
1: Um, certainly Vimeo. Like I I know, for a number of filmmakers, myself included, you know, getting a staff pick is something that can really launch a career. Um, So also, there's an amazing community uh, within the Vimeo world of, you know, commenters and just people interacting with each other. And it's, uh, it feels cool to try to take part in those discussions and just see what um, young people are are making. I definitely go there. I like to read. I was an English major, uh, so that's a good that's a good source. Pop music, and the news are great ways to kind of uh, I feel like keep your finger on the pulse, just what's going on yeah.
0: in pop culture. Are you are you big Are you a big film guy or or not so much? I, no, I I I am. Um, I
1: I certainly began my I've been a big film guy for most of my life. As I have spent more time directing commercials, I've developed an appreciation and a curiosity for short form content that like i probably spend more time watching short form content on Vimeo, on Nowness, on the Atlantic, wherever. Mm -hmm. Um, I probably spend more time watching that than I actually do watching films at this point. Um, and then, obviously, TV has had, right, an enormous renaissance in the past five years. So, like most people, I like my shows.
2: So, yeah, man, um, is there any kind of projects you got kind of working on right now that you, you can kind of talk about? You know, any anything kind of up and coming?
1: Yeah, I actually, I'm supposed to be hearing that I'm up for a job for a, a car commercial that we'll be awarding today by end of day. So I've kind of been like, I imagine that I might in the middle of this interview, get a get a text or you want it, or a text that says, uh, oh, bad news. <laughs> um, but it hasn't come in it, it hasn't come in yet. Um so, you know, fingers crossed. But um other than that, uh I have a, a short doc that um I've been developing that uh would shoot in Japan and you know, Todd again would be shooting it. Um and then I have a couple other spots, uh, one of which I'm waiting to hear back from and one of which I'm currently in the treatment treatment phase so um, yeah uh, i'm not shooting right uh, like today <laughs> but i i have things um, on the near horizon that um, i hope to be able to share with you guys soon so. what
0: what is what what's the future look like for you do you do you see yourself staying in the in the, the commercial short form realm or do you have aspirations to one day be shooting features or what does that look like
1: so my um I guess like the idea of uh, five years, 10 years, like this amount of time seems like it's just such a, a, it it seems like such a lifetime, Mm -hmm. um, especially in a filmmaker's career. So for me, um, my real, my, my main goal, my aspiration now is to direct commercials at the highest level. And whatever that means, I don't know if it means getting to a point where, you know, I'm really proud of the commercial work that I'm making or getting to a point where maybe, my commercial work gets recognized in you know some some cool way, um, but certainly to be a um, commercial director getting great boards and making work you know with a level of output and quality that I can be really proud of. Guys like Lance Accord is you know maybe the model for that. Ag Rojas is amazing. Hiro Morai, Emily Kai like directors like that who are working all the time and it seems like every you know month almost they they have something new out that's deeply inspiring. Yeah, I I I find that really impressive. Uh as far as uh features, I've said to myself it is something that I want, but later in life, uh however, I, I have the sense that if it's 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 not something that's just going to happen on its own, you know, right. like it's something that you have to strive for. for. For right now, I'm really just trying to focus on uh, making the best spots, the best music videos and the best, you know, branded pieces um, that I can make and uh, cutting my teeth, getting my reps in, experimenting with um, different styles this year. That's a big goal of mine for sure. And, uh, that's kind of where I'm at.
0: Awesome. Well, one last question. What, uh, what is something or a few things that, you know, now that you wish you would have known starting out? There are a lot of things that I, (laughs) there are a lot (laughs) of things that I know now that I wish that I wish I knew starting out. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, I'd say one is about, um, developing really the way you develop a relationship with, uh, any agency that you work with on a commercial. I mean, it's so important. Um, I remember the first agency spot that I ever did. I remember, like, I I worked so hard in pre-production on my on my shot list, and I I just I had put so much thought into the conceptualization of how this spot would be shot that it it felt like my baby. But it's extremely important just to kind of ground yourself in the actual like dynamics of just how a commercial comes to be, right? Like a brand has a need. They hire an agency to address that need. The agency finds the director who would be best to bring that that vision to life. Um, and it's really important to make sure that like, it's really important to understand that like, you and the agency, you're on the same team and you have the same goal. I remember that first job when, you know, I submitted my shot list and there were a lot of notes back in the shot list I there was a part of me that felt like, oh man, like this is this is my baby, like my art's being compromised or whatever. But <laughs> but at the same but at the same time, like like we all we all have the same goal. That's the that's the reality of not just the commercial industry, but that's film too. Because I can tell you from my experience, like I you know I worked in a in development um, for for three years, seeing guys like you know pretty prominent screenwriters having their scripts just get torn apart. By studio heads and producers, and um, I, I think uh, there's sort of like a a myth that um, you know, in oh, in commercials, you really have to compromise uh, your vision. Whereas in features, you know, it's it's just pure artistry. But there's you're always. I, I, maybe it's cynical, but you're all, like in features, you're serving a corporate master too, and like you're, you, you may have more time. You may have two hours in a film to experiment, and you know that's and with character and, and structure and everything, and that's amazing. But like in the commercial world, you need to um, you need to learn how to. Uh, I would say, um, at first job, um, I wish that. I, uh, I wish I had a, just a better natural understanding off the bat of the way that uh, directors and agencies work together, but now that I do, I feel much much more comfortable and artistically and creatively fulfilled by the process of directing commercials. I know that regardless of your aesthetic or you know your sensibilities, you know you as a director you can, you can find that too.
0: There you have it, guys. That's going to do it for this week. We've already got our next episode in the works with director Ninny and Doff, so stay tuned for that. It's going to be a good one. We're also thinking about possibly starting to have some non-directors on, editors, colorists, producers, uh, just things like that, and chat with them about their craft, but also their relationship to directors. So still kind of keeping it focused on directors, but I think it'll be cool to get some different perspectives on here. So lots of exciting things to look forward to, and we will look forward to seeing you guys next time. Goodbye, my lovers and friends.